Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's reading is from Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 to 29. And that can be found in the Church Bibles, uh, starting on page 726. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed. By a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer, spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so that it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its furthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel, do not fear. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord, and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights, and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord, Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? 
Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay, who told of this from the beginning so that we could know or beforehand, so that we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Thank you, Richard. Good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you here this morning. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, Pathfinders, don't forget your little handouts uh, like this one here. In fact, adults, uh, you might find it helpful as well. I'm kind of envious of the Pathfinder handouts uh, this morning. Um, we're on page 726 of the Church Bibles, Isaiah 41, and let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glories revealed in this chapter before us. I pray on this Sunday morning you would comfort us with the truth about who you are for us, your people. And I pray you'd help us to respond in hope and in trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We live in a scary world. I'm not just talking about the basements in church buildings. Look at our TV screens. We've seen on the news these last years about the war in Ukraine. We've seen more recently about what's happening in Gaza and Israel and Yemen and I know some of us are impacted personally by these things. The rest of us, we watch on in fear that there'll be escalation and a spread of the war taking place in our world. Maybe it's closer to home. We've been living through a cost of living crisis, soaring inflation, increasing interest rates, and many of us are feeling a financial pressure, and that can be scary thinking about our futures. Maybe it's school. We've come back from the Christmas break and we just don't feel like we have any friends and we dread going into the class each morning. Many of our students are facing exams at the moment and they are stressful and scary. Maybe we've come back from the Christmas break to the news that in our workplace we're facing a series of redundancies. Jobs will be cut in the coming months. Maybe it's our energy levels. We feel trapped in a life where there's too much being asked of us and we feel ourselves gradually going under. We don't have enough to keep going. Maybe it's our health. Maybe it's our kids. We worry about them in this world that is often so difficult. Will they be safe? Will they be happy? Maybe we don't even know what it is, 
But when we leave the front door in the morning, we just feel this lurking sense of dread hanging over our hearts, and we don't even know why. As we come to Isaiah 41, the word fear or afraid comes six times in this one chapter. It is, I think, the dominant theme of the chapter, and it's very realistic. One of the human experiences we will find in this world is one of fear. There are forces at work that are too big for us, and bad things happen in this world. And so the question for all of us this morning is this. What comfort is there for fearful people? The book of Isaiah was written at a time when God's people had many reasons to be afraid. We've been seeing how the terrible Babylonian empire was about to sweep through the land of Judah, destroying Jerusalem, carrying the people off into exile. It was going to be a terrifying time. And Isaiah 41 speaks a word of comfort to fearful people. It reads a bit like a scene from a courtroom. Into the the noise and buzz of conversation, the Lord cries out, verse 1, Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. This is no scene from Judge Rinder. No, this is a courtroom on an epic scale. Over here, we have the nations, including the islands. That's one of Isaiah's ways of speaking about the very extremities of the known world. And over here, we have the Lord, the God of Israel. A dispute is underway. A decision has to be made, and the question is this, who controls the future of the world? And as this trial runs down here, it's as if the people of God are up in the galleries watching on, and the whole trial, it isn't really for the sake of the nations, it's for the people of Israel watching on, and it's here to help them with their fear to put their trust in the Lord. So this morning, let's take our seats, if you like, in the gallery and watch this trial unfold. What comfort is there for fearful people? Two points this morning. The first is this. The Lord's absolute control over the future. Let's pick it up, verse 2. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? This would have been a huge question for the people of Israel. This is about the rise and fall of empires and about who controls power and politics at the very highest levels in human existence. It's a question about Cyrus, king of Persia. This will be confirmed later on in Isaiah. We'll get to chapter 44 and 45 where he is explicitly mentioned. More than that when we get there. But just look at his power, verse 2. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. President Putin has 
a lot of power. He has a very big army. But even Putin hasn't been able to subdue Ukraine. The war continues. But Cyrus, in his day, he is the kind of king who does subdue nations before him, turning all before him to dust. And this picture of Cyrus at work amongst the nations, well, it really happened in history. I wonder, have you heard of the Cyrus Cylinder? I've got a picture of it up here on the screen behind me. I've been to see this in the British Museum. I think it's still on display in London, if you want to go have a look at it uh, even uh, later on today. Um, it was written by some Babylonians. It's a, it's a stone cylinder with um, Babylonian text on it. And it describes a moment in history when the Persian Empire, with Cyrus as their king, overwhelmed the great city of Babylon and took control of it. It happened in 539 BC. The events being described in Isaiah 41, they are historical events that really happened. And one of the things about that part of history was just how suddenly it all came to pass. You see, the Babylonians had been the great superpower of the day. And then almost overnight, the little-known Persian Empire suddenly sprang up and became a thing and suddenly dwarfed everyone else. It's a bit like, I don't know, if I said to you, next year, the Czech Republic will rise up to become the great superpower of the day, overthrowing the Americans, the Chinese, anyone else. They will be the place of power in the world. It'll be quite a stunning claim. Something of what's happening here in Isaiah 41 about Cyrus and what he will do to the nations. Why will this happen? Why will he suddenly come to power and have such power over the nations? Verse 4. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Here is the opening salvo in the courtroom drama. The Lord, the God of Israel, is staking his claim that he is the one who controls the future. He's the one who controls the rise and fall of empires. How do the nations respond? Verse 5. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. It's a totally understandable response. Here comes Cyrus, this great king about to destroy everything in his path. And if you were in his path, it would be a terrifying bit of news. War is terrifying. And so their response, end of verse 5, the nations get together to build an idol. It's a team effort. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith. Someone over here is hammering. Someone else over here is welding. And gradually the idol takes shape. And you can see the verdict at the end of verse 7. It is good, they say. It's not the first time we've heard those words in the Bible. Right back at the beginning in Genesis 1, when God made everything, he said again and again as he created, it was good. It was good. It was good. And in a kind of sad parody, here in Isaiah 41, the nations try to be creators themselves. 
They tell themselves they've done a good job. But look at the end of verse 7. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. It would be comical if it wasn't so sad. What can a lifeless, helpless idol do to bring comfort to fearful people facing overwhelming problems? And yet this response to fear is not just a response of the people back in Isaiah's day. It's a response that is alive and well in our world today. Not with idols made of wood and metal. Perhaps we're scared about the future. And so with the hard work of our hands, we create an idol of money. Hoping the money idol will protect us in the future. Perhaps we're scared of being a failure, and so we work hard at our studies to become academically successful, and we make an idol of our achievements. Perhaps we're scared of what people think of us, and so we work hard at our appearance and the clothes we wear and our haircuts in order to impress people, and we make an idol of how we look. Perhaps we're scared of losing control, And so we plan and plan and plan again, and we make an idol out of our ability to control our environment. Or maybe we're scared of growing old. And so we work out at the gym, and we go on special diets and use special creams, and we make an idol out of being young. Maybe we're scared by the world out there. And so we draw the curtains, we shut the door, and we make an idol of a peaceful home life. Maybe we're scared of the toil and pain of life, and so we make an idol out of comfort and pleasure. Maybe we're scared of being lonely, and so we make an idol out of our human friendships and relationships. Or we search and long for that special person to complete us, and we make an idol out of them. And yet, an idol is something that we make and that we sustain And so in the end, it is just a form of self-reliance. And so the opening round of our trial comes to an end. We've seen the Lord's claim that he is the one who is sovereignly in control of the future of the world. That he controls the rise and falls of empires. We've seen the nations over here, they control the rise and fall of, well, an idol. We're going to pick up what happens in verses 8 to 20 in just a moment. But the trial continues in verse 21. And the issue now becomes, why should we believe the Lord when he claims to be absolutely in control of the future? Verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Or verse 23, tell us what the future holds so we, we may know that you are gods. The Lord is, is mocking the idols of verse 7. Of course, they cannot tell the future. They're just lumps of wood. But crucially, the Lord can and does tell the future. Verse 26, he told you this from the beginning so we could know 
or beforehand so he could say he was right. No one told her this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. A few years ago, I managed to drive from my house here in Fullwood up over the Snake Pass, down through Glossop, all the way to the motorway around Manchester without stopping once. If you know the route, there are dozens of traffic lights and roundabouts. But as I sailed through and as each light was green, I started to convince myself that I could control the lights <laughs> with my mind. Until my wife Lorna pointed out that it was Christmas Day and we were the only cars in the road. We live in a world where lots of people make all kinds of claims about their ability to control their environment, to control the future. How do we sift through the claims to know which ones are true and which ones are false? Well, can we see what's happening here in Isaiah 41? The Lord is staking his claim to be the one who controls the future on the fact that he predicts it before it happens and no one else can. Isaiah is writing around 700 BC. He is talking about events regarding Cyrus and the fall of the Babylonians that, well, Cyrus isn't even born yet. In fact, the very Babylonian empire that will be so big that will be overcome by Cyrus is still 100 years away from being a thing. 160 years until Cyrus will walk into Babylon and overthrow it. And the Lord is saying to his people in Israel, when those events come to pass, as I have predicted, then you will know that I alone am the Lord and absolutely in control of history. And every word he said has come to pass about Cyrus and even more amazingly, as we go through Isaiah, about the servant who is to come, the Lord Jesus, 700 years later, every promise fulfilled in him. What comfort is there for fearful people? We might seek comfort from our idols of money and success and popularity and pleasure and comfort and relationships. But only the Lord controls the future. And if the Lord can predict and make happen the events concerning Cyrus and the rise of the Persian Empire to overthrow the Babylonian Empire, then surely that same Lord can be sovereignly at work in our own lives to bring about the details in our mundane every day such that his good plans for us come to pass just as he has promised for us. But there is another comfort here for us in Isaiah 41. The way these chapters are structured, I, I, I think it's breathtaking. Because we have here a, a trial between the God of the universe and the nations. And the one true God is trouncing the nations as this trial unfolds. But in the midst of the trial, it's as if he presses the pause button and he steps back and he looks up to his people in the gallery and he sets his eyes on them and he speaks to them directly and says something. I've got a word for you, particularly Israel. 
And that word is verses 8 to 20, right in the middle of this trial. Here's our second point. We've seen the Lord's absolute control of the future. Second, the Lord's absolute commitment to his people. Sandwiched in the middle of the global courtroom scene comes these tender, reassuring words. Verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. How extraordinary this is. The sovereign Lord of history has chosen and befriended this little people, Israel. It's not like she was impressive or uh, somehow deserved it. Verse 9, I took you from the end of the earth, from its father's corners, I called you. It's as if the Lord has walked into the room where the dance is taking place and he's looked around the room and he's seen all the beautiful, impressive popular people dancing away in the middle of the room, but his eyes look past all those people and he sees in the furthest corner the shy little no one overlooked by everyone else and his heart is drawn to the little one in the corner. Little Israel, rejected by the nations. He says, verse 9, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Israel's place in God's plans have not been earned or deserved. It is simply because of God's grace. And what a reassurance this is. Back in 2016, Leicester City won the football premiership. No one saw it coming. Before the season began, they were 5,000 to 1 odds against winning the title. And yet, amazingly, this little minnow team rose through the ranks to get to the top of the premiership, and they, and they won the whole thing. Remarkable. And their manager, Claudio Ranieri, he was an instant hero, a club legend. Everyone loved him. But a year later, the results didn't go so well. Leicester sank down from the top of the table, down, 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 and eventually he was sacked. No one loved him anymore. As Christians, it's easy to think God will treat us like that. As long as we're winning in the Christian life, fighting sin, saying our prayers, loving well, serving well, then God will love us and will stick with us. But when we stop winning, when the results tail off, when we give in to our sin and our prayer life dries up and we stop loving and serving as we're called to, then we fear God will turn his back on us. But can we see, it all only ever began with God's sovereign choice of Israel. It was never about who she was or what she did. He simply chose her from the furthest corners of the earth because he loved her. Nothing to do with her performance or her results. And that same election is true for us today as God's people. We're only here today. Not, we're not here because we've earned our way in or because we can keep on earning our way to stay in. We're here because God has set his love on us and chosen us because of his grace. And so when, like Israel, we stumble and fall and our sin feels overwhelming, 
the Lord will not reject us. Instead, verse 10, he says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. The sovereign Lord of history, the one who controls the rise and fall of empires, who knows everything before it happens, he is with us. Last night, this building was packed full, standing room only, as we gathered to hear Richard Holmes speaking about his experience of living with a terminal illness, MND. It was an emotional evening. And it was also extraordinary to hear both from Richard and Lorraine how they had experienced in all the very dark moments of the last few years, how they had experienced again and again and again that the Lord was with them and he will go on being with them in the future. Because verse 10 is no empty promise. 700 years after that verse was written, Christ would come to walk this earth, God with us. And when he ascended back to heaven, God's spirit was poured out on his people to come and live in our hearts day by day. We have God's spirit with us now. He is here in this room and he'll be with us wherever we go today and in our futures. The Lord absolutely committed to his people. And because God is with us, he will defeat all our enemies. That's the promise of verses 11 to 13. I love the picture in verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. Uh, if you go to war, I'm told, uh, you, you're going to fight with your right hand. Most of us are dominant in our right hand. It's our stronger hand. And so if you're Israel, you're going to get your sword out. and You're going to try to beat off the enemies with your best hand, your right hand. And verse 13, it's as if the Lord is saying to Israel, you don't need to wield your sword with your best hand. You're not strong enough. Instead, stop waving your sword and lift up your hands because the Lord's hand is coming down to ours. His mighty right hand will take our weak hand. And he is the one we need to protect us. And with the Lord with us, he will defeat all our enemies. For Israel, Cyrus will be the one who allows freedom from exile back to the promised land. For us today, this side of Christ, we look at what he did on the cross, on how he died to defeat our enemy of sin, and how when he was raised to life, he defeated the last great enemy, death itself. And one day he will return for us, and there'll be no more enemies for us to face. Israel was like a little worm on the world stage. All these huge nations looming over her and threatening her. But verse 15, see, I will make you into a threshing, a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. A threshing sledge was something a farmer would use. They would drag it through the fields to cut down the wheat and to separate the chaff from the grain. The Lord is going to use his people like a threshing sledge. Or verse 16, they're going to, to winnow the nations to separate the chaff from the wheat. And earlier on in verse 2, the chaff was used to describe human powers and authorities. That's the sense here that 
somehow little Israel will be used in God's mighty hand to, to sift the nations. And for us today, the people of God, the church, in many ways, we're like a little worm in our culture. Many people mock God's people today. Pathetic, out of date, past it. And yet the extraordinary promise of these verses is that somehow God will use our very existence in this world to be one of the ways in which he defines history and separates nations and people. It's how, as people respond to the church, so God sifts the nations. It's not that we, we do anything, it's just that we're here. And God works through us to that glorious end. And then verses 17 to 20 take us back to the Exodus when God brought his people out of Egypt through the desert to the promised land. And if he could bring springs into a desert on that journey so he can take his people safely from exile back to the promised land, but for us, through our journeys, through the deserts and hard times, sustaining us until we're home in the new creation. Can we see the Lord's absolute commitment to his people? Last week, we launched our new verse of the year from Isaiah 40. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Even as these words were left hanging in the air at the end of Isaiah 40, it's no surprise that in Isaiah 41, the big issue is fear. For young people, there can be a certain fearlessness in life. We think we can do anything and be anything we want. But as we go through life and we realize that there are forces at work in this world that we cannot control and that bad things do happen to us no matter what we do, isn't that when the fear sets in? And to live with fear day in, day out is exhausting. It grinds us down. It saps our energy. And the young people stumble and fall as they go through life. And so we have a choice to make this morning. Will we try to make it on our own when it comes to our fears? Will we carry those burdens ourselves and worship the idols we have made to get us through? Or will we set our hope on the Lord? The God of Isaiah 41, the one who is absolutely in control of our future and who is absolutely committed to his people. It's not a decision we make once. It's a decision we make again and again and again. Choosing to put our hope in him alone. Let's pray. God says to his people, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you understand our fear. And I pray to help us this morning to see the ways in which so often we respond to fear in self-reliance and running from you. And I pray this morning you give us a fresh confidence to run to you instead.
to bring to you all the things that make us worried and stressed, to cast them onto you afresh and to cry out once again for your sustaining strength that we might be comforted with the thought that you will never leave us or forsake us until you come back for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.